Nobody? Last week it was like, just a city boy. It was like out of control. Let's try it again. Ready? There it is. Okay. I've noticed in churches that I pastor that people avoid the front row. It's like the, the volunteer zone of terror. Mike has pastor immunity, but everybody else is like, do not sit there. Oh, Chris. Oh, geez. Okay. So here we go. Getting into Philippians here. I'm Pastor Scott. In all seriousness, welcome to Elementary Church. If you're new to Elementary, I'd love to connect with you after the service. This week, we will not have any interaction up on stage. Sorry, Chris. I know you're devastated. But in all seriousness, uh, this week, we will have, uh, after church, our owners meeting. Anyone is welcome to attend. Owners will be voting on New Watts Council and on our budget for the upcoming year. And so we invite you to stay. Uh, we have all of our proxy or uh, online votes in. So thank you for those who vote online. And we will get to that after the service. I'm going to give you about a 16-minute social buffer, okay? 16 minutes of talking. I know you're going to go past it, okay? But I'm going to set it at 16. So when I say, okay, find your seats, everyone. If you don't want to stay and get to lunch faster, then you can leave. Understand, church? Yes. All right. Now on to Philippians chapter 2. little discussion question to get our minds in the mindset of Philippians chapter 2 this morning and to think through a little bit about the message itself, I want to ask you this question. What is scariest about faith, about belief? There's some things that are scary, absolutely, about just believing in anything. So it's pretty general. You can take this in the Christianity realm. You can take it, you know, maybe I'm a parent and I have to have faith that my kids will grow up to be functioning adults. It could be a variety of different ways in which you can take this question online. Make sure you chat in and in person right now. Find someone you've not met before. Welcome them to E3 and discuss this question. Ready, set, talk. All right. Y'all are not great singers, but you are great talkers. And I love hearing just kind of what is scariest about faith. And I love that some of you have now morphed that into what are we doing for lunch after the service? And that's okay. You're connecting with one another, and that's great. And I'm glad to hear the connection happening here this morning. Faith is scary, and for elementary and up to my middle school and even to this very day, I picture faith in the mindset of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. This scene, this scene is faith to me. Do you ever see the scene where he has to cross upon this giant leap of faith? And I always thought, man, I wish I had faith like that to step out into the void. But faith is scary, and it has to grow and evolve and change over one's lifetime. For most of us, Hopefully, the greatest fear about faith has changed over our lifetime. I hope you don't have the same mindset about faith as you did when you were two or three, but more on that in a moment. See, all of us, from Pastor Scott to the youngest to the oldest person in the room, and we're not going to take a vote, don't worry, we change in what we believe and how we believe and the fears of that belief. Developmental psychologists often divide our development into three different areas. There's a physical development of development that you should not stay as an infant your entire life. None of us are Benjamin Button. If you don't know who that is, just keep going. There's the cognitive development where your brain changes over time. Most of us, especially men in the room, we, we kind of plateau about six years old. But women, I've heard that there's all sorts of places in your brain you've unlocked and paradox and, and, and cool things. And then there's a psychosocial development where we talk to one another. Again, guys, we're about six years old most of the time, okay? You like the girl, you hit him on the face. I don't know. It's just weird. 
Hopefully you laugh at that, okay? We pull their hair. I like you. No, 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 no. There's a psychosocial development where we understand we learn how to interact with other people in different ways, in different social settings. The ideal pattern is that there is a way in which we progress over our lifetimes into a fully functioning and a very highly functioning human being. And different psychologists have made roadmaps for each one of these, the physical, the cognitive, and the psychosocial. And there are times where we have to break the mold, of course. But in an ideal situation, I love using Eric Erickson's theory of social development. And he uses seven different stages. And if you've done this in school, in school, not seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's different stages that he puts forth in saying you should grow along these areas as you get older. We start out with infancy. That we, we, we start as an infant. And from about zero to 18 months, we do not get to control how we are fed or what we are fed. And you have to have this idea of trust that is embedded in this beginning stage. The next stage is early adulthood, which is two to three years old, where you have autonomy versus shame and doubt. And this is most expressed through this idea of potty training. Potty training is shame. I just heard some, a mother in the back. Yes, amen. Potty training. There's autonomy. I can go to the bathroom by myself with no help from mom and dad. And then there's the shame and doubt of accidentally peeing your pants and not telling your mom and dad about it for three years. Okay? It's about that frame. Two to three years. One year. One year. Two to three years old, shame and doubt versus autonomy. In preschool, it's three to five years old where you have initiative versus guilt. Initiative versus guilt. We see that through exploration, that if I take a Sharpie and I draw my dad's freshly painted wall, just as an example, not that this has happened within the last two months in my house, three to five years old, friends, there's only one of my children in this age range, and they draw Lillian, I'm just saying randomly, just a random name, on my freshly painted wall, the guilt from that also has a paradox that someday that initiative will function well as she's vice president or president of the United States. I don't know what she'll be. I'm just, I'm just sitting in my moment. I'm still a little mad. It's still on our wall. Come over and see it anytime. Just theoretically. School age, 6 to 11 years old, industry versus inferiority. Here we see the confidence grow where I'm good at certain subjects and I may not like other subjects. You know, how many of you love P.E.? Okay, a couple, yeah. How many of you hated PE? Yeah, okay. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's, it's almost 50-50 thereabouts. Okay, let's try another one just for fun. Math? Love math? Love math? Hated math? Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting just, and the teacher in me saying, okay, my non-PE and my hating math friends are over here and my yes PE and loving math friends are over here. And so I'm thinking, where is this? Okay, I'm staying focused. Adolescence, 12 to 18 years old, identity versus role confusion. The social relationships are key in this time frame. Yes? Yes. That's why we say all middle schoolers leave now and find those social relationships, find people who will walk alongside you in this key time in your lifetime and needing educational methods that are different than what we have in here, which is starting young adulthood. 19 to 40 years old, 19 to 40 years old, we see intimacy or isolation. That happens in relationships of all different kinds, not just romantic, but all different kinds in this time frame. That there's a growth that occurs or there can be isolation. And then in middle adulthood, this is an interesting one to me particularly, because you can either 
have generativity, where I'm giving off to the next generations with no expected benefit of my own. I've grown from this time of not knowing where my next meal's coming from to now where I'm saying, how can I give to the next generations? Or is there stagnation? Generativity is not an actual word. It's made up, but it's an actual term that they use to describe this phrase. Lastly, maturity. And the person who comes into this last phase, ages 65 and on, either has an integrity in their ego or despair about their upcoming death. Now, along this way, hopefully you identified with different areas. And some of us started out way back here, not knowing if we were going to be fed as an infant. And that impacts us as we go along our way. But what's interesting about Erickson's is that you cannot have a horrible situation and yet be a shining star in whatever situation your life has about it. Now, some of you are saying, what does this have to do with anything from the Bible? It, it does. It does absolutely. The large question along Erickson's is ask, what would it look like to have a development of faith timeline? How would our faith evolve over time, time, timelines of our lives? Paul writes to the Philippians on this matter, I believe, rather directly, in my opinion. There's millions of ways to look at chapter two here and not bring out this idea of a spectrum of development of a human being. However, when we look at chapter two, it's right there. Last week, Paul commanded the Philippians to be like Christ. And he gave a beautiful Christological hymn. And we talked about last week this idea of kenosis, which means emptying of my own desires and filling Christ where my desires may live. I hope that was impactful for those there. And if you didn't, please log on. Please listen to that message last week. But there's a new topic now, starting in chapter 2, verse 12, where the most beautiful Christological poem ends and Paul changes topics, but also brings forth that idea of that poem into the upcoming verses. So let's get into chapter 2, verse 12, starting on the screens. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more my absence, continue to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act every good, every, in order, excuse me, to fulfill his good purpose. There we go. See, Paul is in a Roman prison. He encourages the Philippians to continue without him there in their work of being faithful stewards, of being Jesus to all who they encounter with, to empty out themselves. But Paul specifically highlights salvation as a key component here. Salvation needs to be understood in order to comprehend Paul's intent here. Salvation has many aspects that go through this age into the present one to come. Confession of Jesus as Lord means you must trust and obey Jesus. Therefore, working out your salvation does not mean working for your salvation. That you have to do good works in order to please Jesus. Instead, it makes salvation and the confession of Jesus your operational in all your life. One doesn't say, I believe in Jesus, and then continues to live their life exactly as it was before. Say that again. One does not say, I believe in Jesus and continue to work out their life exactly as they lived before. Rather, when someone is justified with Jesus Christ, they must become sanctified moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, and so on and so forth. Knowing that this process will never, ever, ever be finished until you see Jesus face to face. 
Personally, that's one of my, my greatest fears about being a Christian is that someday I may think that I'm so well-versed, so knowledgeable, so experienced that I am, in fact, Christ. And that's just not the case. That every single day of my life, I have to become more and more like Jesus while at the same time representing Jesus to everyone I come into contact with. Woo! Isn't that a load of weight to bear? That you're never gonna get there. You're never gonna be perfect. And perfectionists in the room, this is a relief statement. This is not a condemnation. You are never going to be perfect, and yet you represent the one perfect person in the world. The paradox. And here I must pause. The journeys we take in this life are nothing like that of being a Christian. Mission trips return back home. Pilgrimages come down from the mountain. Retreats, they, they eventually end. Vacations and vacations from vacations all are counted to your PTO balance. But in our secular life, we do not have a category for the concept of working out our salvation. Our workday ends at 5 p.m. or whatever time it ends. There are different training regimens, but all of them must change with the body's ability. Many of us cannot do what we once did in early in our lives. Even cognitively, there will be a day where I will not be able to play chess as well as I play today. Yet our relationship with God, our faith, must be secure. What is our ever-present reality is that faith requires doubt. Faith requires doubt. The young CEO, the retiree, the bodybuilder, and the paralytic, the genius versus the one riddled by Alzheimer's who can only recall hymns. The preschooler learning the main characters of the Bible all have doubt when it comes to faith, no matter what stage they are in. I used to work at Boys Town High School up in Omaha, Nebraska. And at Boys Town, they had this high school set up where kids came in and they came in three categories. You had your drug abusers, which was a variety of different types of drugs. You had your abusees, who were actually abused by people in their world, and then you'd abuse errors. And it was the worst <laughs> gathering of people in one spot that you could imagine, and they're all in high school. And I taught Protestant overview of theology. Protestant overview of theology. All that meant was non-Catholic. So this sounds like a joke, but it's not. I had a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Mormon, and a Southern Baptist in the room. And I said, God, and they all looked at me differently. It was fascinating. And we talked about who is God and what is God. And friends, in every single one of the classes, I learned something very quickly. There was a huge difference between anger at God versus apathy at God. Anger you can work with. Anger's healthy and good. Because one who was abused by someone close to them should be angry at their situation. But the one who's apathetic it happened, I guess. I don't know what else to do. There's very little to work with. See, anger at a deep faith. The well of faith was deep. Apathy, it's very shallow. Just saying, oh, love you, Boem, whatever it is, what it is, I'll just work through it. It'll be okay. No big deal. Okay, whatever. And I saw the most transformation in those students who were angry, who were despondent, who had a great depth of emotion when you talked about God versus those who could care very little and were just there to take up space and oxygen. 
And this is where the phrase that Paul uses, fear and trembling are so important. Our faith does not have to be fearful, like we're scared or afraid. But I believe Paul writes us to illustrate that our belief that God is working out in us. But we have to be a little bit unsure of its ultimate goal. A little bit nervous about where is this all going? We know that Jesus died for us. But none of us can truly ever say, I am 100% sure I am saved and I know exactly where I'm going when I die. If you believe that, that's a very weak, shallow faith. Instead, ask the question, what happens if I don't believe in Jesus and I die? And there is a heaven. Well, that's even worse. And you can start playing these games of questioning your faith that will make the well all the deeper and your faith even stronger. So ask questions, saying, what if I am wrong? How can I be better? And I want E3 Church and the entire church to take these questions seriously and to engage them with depth. In most of my experience with Christians, they have zero doubt and therefore no growth. They rely upon cheap grace and platitudes like God will never give you more than you can't handle. We see political statements that somehow appear to align with the Bible, and so they latch on to those. And it is through this that I propose a healthy development of faith in 2022 that I'm not going to publish or take a bunch of time to build up because I believe in 2023 and 2030 and 2060 that the Christian church will transform and transform and transform numerous times over. Can you imagine, especially our online friends, just five or six years ago saying, I attend church virtually. No. I, I would say that's, that's ridiculous. And now we have things like, the, I don't even know what it is, the metaverse that are coming out. And so things are changing so quickly. But I believe that we can set categories just like Erickson did in understanding that I have developed and changed in my faith over my lifetime. I'd love for you to Raise your hand if you've passed through the phase that I illustrate. And I'll give you time as a church to just think through, where am I on my progression of faith? Is it at a shallow level one level? Or am I almost to Jesus Christ? <laughs> Never there, but almost. I'm using people and theologians named Piaget, Vitasky, and Niebauer. But knowing that this is a Scott Martinism and has nothing that I'm plagiarizing here. So start off in stage one, which corresponds really well with Erickson. That's your foundational faith. Those of you who sent your kids over to Miss Maribel and praise Miss Maribel, amen? Come on, church, amen? <laughs> Parents in here are like, my kid is not climbing in my face right now. Amen, Maribel, <laughs> thank you. All right, that's the most excited I ever got in a sermon. Here's, here's where... Real quick, okay, real quick. As a pleader and a father, there's a time where my son, not here just so you know, my son came up on stage to the leaning worship song and was asking to go to the bathroom and started pulling my pants down in the middle of a worship song. I finished the song and I was depantsed. Okay, so with that in mind and the image you can never get out of your head, foundational faith is step one. It's just the basics. Who is Abraham? Who is Moses? Who is Noah? When do I get Noah and Moses confused, which always happens? 
those foundational Bible stories and the idea that Jesus loves me, this I know for the tells me so. We know these, these lyrics, we know these songs, and they're foundational to our faith. They make up who I am and what I believe so much until we get to stage two, which is called the teenage crisis. Because in stage one, I hear that Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, and then in stage two, at some point in the teenage years, I didn't put years up here, but teenagers now are starting around nine-ish. Some of them are going through things at seven or six all the way up to 18 or 19. Some of us are teenagers and we're 25, you know? I mean, we're in this teenage phase where the foundations that I learned don't work anymore because people say, no, God doesn't love me. So I go back to my song and I sing it again. I say, no, Jesus does love you. Jesus loves you so much. And they say, no, he doesn't. Or the world, people reject me for 10,000 reasons as a teenager these days. So I have to question, if everybody rejects me and my church rejects me, then does God actually love me? This is the hardest phase. And strategically, we need to pour our resources into these young people. Because man, folks, they're going through the ringer. They're going to hell and back in some ways. And to surround them with love, regardless of their experiences, will help them develop from an infant stage of faith into a teenage crisis blossoming of faith. Many of us got baptized in this area. Raise your hands if you've been here. That I was baptized as a teenager because this is the time where my faith becomes my own. It's not just stuff that somebody reads from me from a textbook. It is now my own. How many of us have gone through this set of faith. Raise your hand. Some of you are still there, and that's okay. Some of us are still here, and that's okay. Because Jesus says, once you get here, heaven's yours. Isn't that a relief? Stage two, stage three, the paradoxical crisis. Again, no age ranges. This can be from your wise 14-year-old, your wise nine-year-old, all the way up until your 40s, 50s, 60s. This is where most of us land in the modern day church, and that's because the way that church is programmed, it's, it's made. And it's not a bad thing, but surrounded in this idea that there's paradoxes all around us, that there's good and bad people, and sometimes the good and bad people are the same person. The good person on Monday all of a sudden is the bad person on Tuesday. The, the, the saint who's preaching on Sunday morning I run into with my car on Friday night and he gives me, you know, something else. I'm, I'm a paradox myself. Every pastor is, every person in some sort of authority position. And so stage three, we see ideas that most people will stay here because it's a time of working out this idea of what it means to be a faith-filled Christian. Those of you who have read the book Helping Hurts, which is a missional book, describing that sometimes missionaries have these great intentions and in fact hurt the organization they're trying to help. This is a paradoxical book of this area where you're saying, I'm trying to help you, and you're saying my help isn't helping? What? A paradox. Questions, can I see multiple truths at the same moment of faith, and can I grow from that? That Jesus isn't a one-size-fits-all savior, even though he boldly proclaims that he is the only way to see God. Many of us who are in different phases use this term deconstruction, deconstruction. 
which is a fancy Christian term of saying, this didn't work for where my faith is right now, and this certainly doesn't work. And so I'm sitting here, and I need somebody to walk alongside me. And thank God for growth groups. Seriously. Growth groups for a person in deconstruction is the best way, maybe not the only way, but the best way to work through this phase of faith development. Then we get to stage four, which is the selfless leader phase. This selfless leader doesn't do things for their own benefit, but because fully for Christ's. As usually in later adult years, they've gone through this idea that there's paradoxes, but the selfless leader says, I can't be the one to judge and say, you're right and you're wrong. By the way, neither of you were right or wrong. But this idea that I am not in control of that, it's, it's all him. And somehow he's using me as a vessel to share the good news of Jesus to both of you and to every person I come into contact with. The selfless leader phase is a scary place. But guess who's there? Paul. Paul's there writing the Philippians. Paul's writing the Philippian church saying things as a selfless leader while in prison that if I was in his situation, I'd never say. I'd be like, get me out of here. I'm still in this phase in many ways. But the selfless leader is one we all want to ascribe to. And then lastly, the stage five, which is a little bit confusing because stage five can happen after stage one. It's the idea that I am ready to meet Jesus face to face with a faith that is so secure and so solid that nothing could shake it. Not the worst life circumstance, not the greatest lottery winning of all time, that no matter what life's gonna bring to me, I'm ready to meet Jesus. And so there's many of us who are in stage one here who are okay going to stage five, and that is a beautiful and amazing and holy thing. I've been privileged to walk alongside several people who are just at that phase, regardless of their circumstances, saying, I'm ready to see Jesus. It works in all faith walks. And we see that sometimes we go backwards a bit in how faith comes practicing in our real life, that there's certain crises that happen that move us violently from one phase to another. But the point of this is, is that we have to, with fear and trembling, be forced to either grow our faith or to stagnate and entrench ourselves in beliefs that don't fit life's circumstances. And it's like, it's like, Going back to Erickson's progression, I'm a fully grown adult eating baby food. Baby food tastes horrible, friends. Eat steak <laughs> or shrimp or whatever you like. I don't care. Don't eat baby food. Be a fully functioning human. And just like a Christian, don't just say platitudes that don't actually help people. Be Christ. Be Christ to the teenager. Be Christ to the person in paradox. Be Christ to the person and be more and more like Jesus. Here's the oh duh moment. The church is the only organization whose mission it is to help you grow in your faith from stage zero, stage one, whatever stage I said, all the way to the very end. And that's where the church needs to be in your life. So church, are you ready to go more and more? Faith progression is hard. And it hits us at different seasons in different ways. But I want to be a church that surrounds us and grows us and allows Christ to come inside of us. We do that so specifically 
to the sacrament of communion. Here at E3, we take communion every month outside of uh, Christmas time, uh, December. That's the month that's called, sorry. I got wrapped up in sermonizing and I was getting excited and I forgot the name December. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an imperfect person. I'm progressing. Back on cue. We take communion every month. And uh, each time we take communion, we look at it as a non-essential, essential, in that this can mean certain things to you in your faith walk, but it doesn't have to mean one specific thing. Some of you believe this is literally Christ's body and blood. Some of you see it more as, as symbolic, as, as a thing that I take and I just do because that's what Jesus told us to do. Some of you say, hey, it's the Holy Spirit somehow takes this symbol and makes it really him in real ways. Whatever the way in which you engage this, I ask you to do it with a sense of holiness. That this is what Jesus left us to do. And to come with a sense of awe. In a moment, we'll pray over these and I'll dismiss you to come and receive the sacraments. We invite you to come up in a somewhat of a line to the station set in front of your area. One, two, and three. And know that all of our bread is gluten-free. And you don't have to be a member of this church or of any church but boldly proclaim that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and the table is open to you at whatever phase of life you're in. Now I'd like to pray over these sacraments and ask you to come up and take and hold them till our worship team is done leading us in the next song and that we would take all of these elements together as one church body. With that, let's pray and bless the sacraments we're about to receive. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing over about what we're about to do that this isn't some sort of silly institutional rite or some sort of emptiless creed, but instead this is literally coming into contact with you in the best way you sought to give us. It wasn't some sort of complex sacrificial system or some sort of crazy academic exercise, but instead it's simple things, bread and juice that represent the entirety of Scripture, the Passover, the temple system, and even conquering death itself, that my faith can be more and more by identifying with you and taking you inside of me. And so we bless these elements before us. We bless the hands which take them, and we ask that this time be a holy time to come into contact with you our eternal Savior, we say together, amen. Come, the table is open.